The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc Narrated by Paul Spera A Tragedy in the Forest of Morgue The village was terror-stricken. It was on a Sunday morning. The peasants of Saint-Nicolas and the neighborhood were coming out of church and spreading across the square, when, suddenly, the women who were walking ahead and who had already turned into the high road fell back with loud cries of dismay. At the same moment, an enormous motor car, looking like some appalling monster, came tearing into sight at a headlong rate of speed. Amid the shouts of the madly scattering people, it made straight for the church, swerved just as it was about to dash itself to pieces against the steps, grazed the wall of the presbytery, regained the continuation of the national road, dashed along, turned the corner, and disappeared, without, by some incomprehensible miracle, having so much as brushed against any of the persons crowding the square. But they had seen. They had seen a man in the driver's seat, wrapped in a goatskin coat with a fur cap on his head and his face disguised in a pair of large goggles, and, with him, on the front of that seat, flung back, bent in two, a woman whose head, all covered with blood, hung down over the bonnet. And they had heard. They had heard the woman's screams, screams of horror, screams of agony. And it was all such a vision of hell and carnage that the people stood for some seconds motionless, stupefied. "'Blood!' roared somebody. There was blood everywhere, on the cobblestones of the square, on the ground hardened by the first frosts of autumn. And when a number of men and boys rushed off in pursuit of the motor, they had but to take those sinister marks for their guide. The marks, on their part, followed the high road, but in a very strange manner, going from one side to the other and leaving a zigzag track in the wake of the tires that made those who saw it shudder. How was it that the car had not bumped against that tree? How had it been righted instead of smashing into the bank? What novice, what madman, what drunkard, what frightened criminal was driving that motor car with such astounding bounds and swerves? One of the peasants declared, never make the turn in the forest. And another said, Of course they won't. She's bound to upset. The forest of Morgue began at half a mile beyond Saint-Nicolas, and the road, which was straight up to that point, except for a slight bend where it left the village, started climbing immediately after entering the forest and made an abrupt turn among the rocks and trees. No motor car was able to take this turn without first slackening speed. There were posts to give notice of the danger. The breathless peasants reached the quincunx of beeches that formed the edge of the forest, and one of them at once cried, There you are. What? Upset. The car, a limousine, had turned turtle and lay smashed, twisted, and shapeless. Beside it, the woman's dead body. But the most horrible, sordid, stupefying thing was the woman's head, crushed, flattened, invisible under a block of stone, a huge block of stone lodged there by some unknown and prodigious agency. 
As for the man in the goatskin coat, he was nowhere to be found. He was not found on the scene of the accident. He was not found either in the neighborhood. Moreover, some workmen coming down the Côte de Morgue declared that they had not seen anybody. The man, therefore, had taken refuge in the woods. The gendarmes, who were at once sent for, made a minute search, assisted by the peasants, but discovered nothing. In the same way, the examining magistrates, after a close inquiry lasting for several days, found no clue capable of throwing the least light upon this inscrutable tragedy. On the contrary, the investigations only led to further mysteries and further improbabilities. Thus it was ascertained that the block of stone came from a place where there had been a landslip at least forty yards away, and the murderer in a few minutes had carried it all that distance and flung it on his victim's head. On the other hand, the murderer, who was most certainly not hiding in the forest, for if so he must inevitably have been discovered, the forest being of limited extent, had the audacity, eight days after the crime, to come back to the turn on the hill and leave his goatskin coat there. Why? With what object? There was nothing in the pockets of the coat except a corkscrew and a napkin. What did it all mean? Inquiries were made of the builder of the motor car, who recognized the limousine as one which he had sold three years ago to a Russian. The said Russian, declared the manufacturer, had sold it again at once. To whom? No one knew. The car bore no number. Then again, it was impossible to identify the dead woman's body. Her clothes and underclothing were not marked in any way, and the face was quite unknown. Meanwhile, detectives were going along the National Road in the direction opposite to that taken by the actors in this mysterious tragedy. But who was to prove that the car had followed that particular road on the previous night? They examined every yard of ground. They questioned everybody. At last, they succeeded in learning that, on the Saturday evening, a limousine had stopped outside a grocer's shop in a small town situated about 200 miles from Saint-Nicolas on a highway branching out of the National Road. The driver had first filled his tank, bought some spare cans of petrol, and lastly taken away a small stock of provisions, a ham, fruit, biscuits, wine, and a half-bottle of three-star brandy. There was a lady on the driver's seat. She did not get down. The blinds of the limousine were drawn. One of these blinds was seen to move several times. The shopman was positive that there was somebody inside. Presuming the shopman's evidence to be correct, then the problem became even more complicated, for so far no clue had revealed the presence of a third person. Meanwhile, as the travelers had supplied themselves with provisions, it remained to be discovered what they had done with them and what had become of the remains. The detectives retraced their steps. It was not until they came to the fork of the two roads at a spot eleven or twelve miles from San Nicolas that they met a shepherd who, in answer to their questions, directed them to a neighboring field, hidden from view behind the screen of bushes, where he had seen an empty bottle and other things. 
The detectives were convinced at the first examination. The motor car had stopped there, and the unknown travelers, probably after a night's rest in their car, had breakfasted and resumed their journey in the course of the morning. One unmistakable proof was the half bottle of three star brandy sold by the grocer. This bottle had its neck broken clean off with a stone. The stone employed for the purpose was picked up, as was the neck of the bottle, with its cork covered with a tinfoil seal. The seal showed marks of attempts that had been made to uncork the bottle in the ordinary manner. The detectives continued their search and followed a ditch that ran along the field at right angles to the road. It ended in a little spring hidden under brambles, which seemed to emit an offensive smell. On lifting the brambles, they perceived a corpse, the corpse of a man whose head had been smashed in so that it formed little more than a sort of pulp swarming with vermin. The body was dressed in a jacket and trousers of dark brown leather. The pockets were empty no papers, no pocketbook, no watch. The grocer and his shopman were summoned, and two days later, formally identified by his dress and figure, the traveler who had bought the petrol and provisions on the Saturday evening. The whole case, therefore, had to be reopened on a fresh basis. The authorities were confronted with a tragedy no longer enacted by two persons, a man and a woman, of whom one had killed the other, but by three persons, including two victims, of whom one was the very man who was accused of killing his companion. As to the murderer, there was no doubt. He was the person who traveled inside the motor car and who took the precaution to remain concealed behind the curtains. He had first got rid of the driver and rifled his pockets, and then, after wounding the woman, carried her off in a mad dash for death. Given a fresh case, unexpected discoveries, unforeseen evidence, one might have hoped that the mystery would be cleared up, or at least that the inquiry would point a few steps along the road to the truth. But not at all. The corpse was simply placed beside the first corpse. New problems were added to the old. The accusation of murder was shifted from the one to the other, and there it ended. Outside those tangible, obvious facts, there was nothing but darkness. The name of the woman, the name of the man, the name of the murderer were so many riddles. And then, what had become of the murderer? If he had disappeared from one moment to the other, that in itself would have been a tolerably curious phenomenon. But the phenomenon was actually something very like a miracle, inasmuch as the murderer had not absolutely disappeared. He was there. He made a practice of returning to the scene of the catastrophe. In addition to the goatskin coat, a fur cap was picked up one day, and, by way of an unparalleled prodigy, one morning, after a whole night spent on guard in the rock beside the famous turning, the detectives found on the grass of the turning itself a pair of motor goggles, broken, rusty, dirty, done for. How had the murderer managed to bring back those goggles unseen by the detectives? And above all, why had he brought them back? Men's brains reeled in the presence of such abnormalities. They were almost afraid to pursue the ambiguous adventure. 
They received the impression of a heavy, stifling, breathless atmosphere, which dimmed the eyes and baffled the most clear-sighted. The magistrate in charge of the case fell ill. Four days later, his successor confessed that the matter was beyond him. Two tramps were arrested and at once released. Another was pursued but not caught. Moreover, there was no evidence of any sort or kind against him. In short, it was nothing but one helpless muddle of mist and contradiction.